Amen. HBC, as we think about you, we miss you and we love you and are praying for you and hope that the word of God today ministers to you as we continue through the book of Exodus. We got two sermons left, this one and Lord willing, two weeks from today, we will conclude the book of Exodus. For Easter next Sunday, our brother Tim Hoke and Deacon will be preaching on Resurrection Sunday. Um, we hope you'll take advantage of, of the next week, Easter week leading up. We're going to be doing some devotionals as a church each day and sending those out to you to encourage you. We're also going to be having our Good Friday service live streamed on April 10th at 6.30. We hope you'll join us for that. And also be looking at your email. I, I've sent this out to our broader community, pastors in our community, encouraging them to encourage their churches to take part in an initiative that was launched by the Gospel Coalition yesterday. Um, it's called Jesus Changed My Life. It was started by a pastor in the Los Angeles area, and it kind of has spread around the world. And what he's encouraging people to do is to post a one- to two-minute testimony of how Christ has changed your life on social media this week. And think about that, that as people are just sitting there just scrolling through their Facebook feeds, if one after another people saw one- to two-minute testimonies of what Jesus has done in their life. And then they could click on this little hashtag that would say, Jesus changed my life. And that would open up a whole other group of videos that people could watch. What might the Lord do this week if his people took the gospel to others? It's not just pastors, it's not just deacons doing it, but it's the whole church body ministering in this way to all your friends and neighbors and coworkers getting the gospel out. What might the Lord do through that? So let's do that. If you have that ability, if you don't feel comfortable doing it on a video form or whatever, uh, you could do it just in writing and post it. And, um, and, and we want to encourage as many of you as who are able to do that and willing to do that would, would do that. We'll send out some more information about that. That's exciting, and, um, it's, it's, and we can pray that the Lord would bless our testimonies to his glory. So this morning we're going to consider Exodus 34. Now, as we've walked through these, these texts the last couple of weeks, especially the last two chapters, Exodus 32, Exodus 33, these are quite sad chapters. We remember Exodus 32 was marked by the golden calf incident where they worshiped a false god. Moses interceded for them. He confronted them. But then last week we saw that he interceded for them once again, and God relented, it seems, that God was going to send them into the land. He was going to provide an angelic escort. One problem, he wasn't going. Moses didn't think that was a good idea. It's not good to go to uh, the land that God had promised without God going with them. So he pleaded with the Lord to go, and the Lord promised him that he would in fact go on the basis of two things we saw last week. God's character is gracious, and God's covenant with Moses and with Abraham, and the fact that Moses had found favor in God's sight, and we connected that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this morning what we want to do is conclude that story this is God re-ratifying the covenant again. It's him being, him being and showing himself to be a God of second chances. That he is willing to give his people a mulligan. That he's willing to give them a do-over. That he, I, I, one of my favorite verses in all the Old Testament is Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. When God says to Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Praise God that we have a God that sends his word to us a second time. Praise God that we don't, we don't have a God who when we blow the test, we blow the relationship with him. But rather, there is always an opportunity by grace to come back into his favor. So this morning, we're going to consider the God of second chances in Exodus chapter 34. 
Here's the first point of this morning's sermon, the revelation of God's character. As we saw last week, we saw that one of the reasons that God does this, that he is a God of second chances, is because it's in his nature to be gracious. He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. He will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. We see that redefined here in the first nine verses of Exodus 34. The fact that the tablets are remade. Did you see that in verse 1? The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the word that were on the first tablets. Remember, he gave his law again to them because, according to Exodus 32, 19, Moses broke the other ones when he came down to the base of the mountain and saw Israel's idolatry. But God here in Exodus 34 commits himself to the covenant again and tells Moses to cut the tablets and he's going to write on them again. We see why God does this. When Moses asks him again or or comes near to him again, God proclaims his name to him in verses 6 and 7. Look at those verses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we see here that the reason God is reinstituting this covenant is because he is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is a God who is slow to anger. He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God who keeps steadfast love. He is a God who forgives iniquity. He's a God who forgives transgression and sin. So what do we learn about the character of God in these verses? We got a lot of good news in these verses about who our God is, brothers and sisters. Think about it. To those who are in need, God is compassionate and merciful. He has certainly revealed this about himself throughout the book of Exodus. He takes thought of his people and he's concerned with their distress. Secondly, to those who can't measure up, God is gracious. God is God's 100% conditional, sorry, let me restate that. Grace is God's 100% contra-conditional favor to the undeserving and the ill-deserving. This is who God is. To those who are rebellious, God is slow to anger. God is patient in the face of murmuring, complaining, rebellion, and yes, even idolatry, God is patient. To those who are unfaithful, God abounds in steadfast love and loyalty. God always follows through on his commitments. To those who are guilty, God is forgiving. The word means to lift or to carry. This is what God does with our sins. He lifts the guilt off of our shoulders, he puts them on himself, and he carries them away. To those who are unrepentant, though, this text says that God is just. Israel manifested repentance after the incident with the golden calf in Exodus 33. And Israel manifested that repentance, but for those who do not, they will be punished. This also is taught here in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. So how do we reconcile this picture of God? How do we reconcile a God of justice and a God of love? A God who is slow to anger and yet who will not leave the guilty unpunished? Well, that's the question of the whole Bible, friends. How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? The answer is that his love answers the demands of his justice, and we see this most keenly in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is where this whole story is going. On the cross, God poured out his justice 
on sin and at the same time demonstrated his great love for those who will believe in him. Therefore, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, like Romans 3, 26 says. So are you trusting in Christ this morning to take your judgment from God? If not, sadly, until you do, you will be the one receiving the judgment. The penalty for our sins can only be paid in one of two places, by Christ on the cross or by you in hell. And if you're not yet clinging to Christ by faith, run to him this morning. Cry out to him to pardon you, receive you, to impute his righteousness to you and to remove your sins from you, to give his spirit to you, to save you and to make you his own. And he will do that. He will do that. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn and be saved. But maybe as you're listening to me this morning, you're one who is clinging to Christ, you're entrusted yourself to Christ, you are holding on to Christ to be your Savior and Lord and King and Christ and Savior and everything that you need to be reconciled to God. And you still say, but I'm, I'm too filthy, I'm too unworthy. These verses, brothers and sisters, have great, great encouragement for you. You might say, well, though God is able to help me, I'm fearful that God's not willing to help me, and therefore I'm discouraged. But, brothers and sisters, be of good comfort. The Lord's name is merciful, and he's willing to help you. But you say, well, yeah, he might be willing to help me, but I'm, I'm unworthy, and I have nothing at all to move God to help me. But, brothers and sisters, be of good comfort, because the Lord says, my name is gracious. He doesn't show mercy because you're good. He shows mercy because he's good. But you say, I've been sinning a long time, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Maybe if I came to God earlier in my life, I would have received mercy, but I've been sinning a long time, and therefore I fear that he's got no mercy left for me. But be of good comfort, the Lord is slow to anger. Slow to anger. But you say, I've sinned so extremely, so many sins that I've, I'm never able to reckon up and humble myself for them and ask forgiveness and I've broken all my promises to God and all the vows I've made to him and I'm discouraged but he says I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness God is as abundant in steadfast love and faithfulness as you are abundant in sin if you've broken faith with God he will not break his faith with you if you will turn to him but though the Lord is all this to David and Abraham and Moses, you might think, yeah, but not for me. But the Lord says that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, not just the rock stars in the kingdom, not just the all-stars, not just the Hall of Fame candidates, but for thousands. As one writer says, William Bridge, in a lifting up for the downcast, he says, God has not spent all of his mercy on David or Abraham or Paul or on Peter. He's kept mercy for thousands. But my sins still recoil on me, he says. I am the greatest sinner in the world, for I've sinned all kinds of sin. I fear there's no hope for me. Yet, says the Lord, be not discouraged, for I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, even all kinds of sin. This is my name forever. Oh, but I am afraid to lay hold on this promise, for I think this is a doctrine of license. Do not say that, says the Lord, who will by no means clear the guilty. But if there is ever a poor, drooping, fearing, trembling soul that desires to know my name, here, says the Lord, is my name by which I will be known forever. Then William Bridge concludes and says, The name of God quiets the heart 
against all discouragements. Praise God that his name and the revelation of his character is this. And it's on that basis that we rest and know that our God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He's the God of second chances based on the revelation of his character. Number two, he's the God of second chances based on the renewal of his covenant. In verses 10 through 28, we see God renewing all the covenant stipulations that he made with Israel before they sinned. Remember, as a result of God's promises to renew his covenant with Israel, he promised, he promised to drive out their enemies and to, and to plant them in the land, and he's going to do this again. You see, you see in verses 10 through 28, I won't take time to reread them, but he makes this promise again that he's going to go with them and that he's going to drive out their enemies, but that they must be people who are committed not to building idols, but to destroying them. He says in verses 11 and 12 that they're not to join in political treaties with other nations that might corrupt them and the power that might come into them as a result of that. They're not to join in religious practices, false religious practices with other nations in verses 13 through 15. And then they're not to join in marital relationships with other nations in verse 16. The whole idea is that they are to be a set-apart people for God. They are to belong to him. They are to trust him as their king. They are to look to him and worship him alone. And they are to build families rooted in faith in him. The reason for this is to prevent the idolatry that they participated in in chapter 32. And then he provides instructions in verses 17 through 28 on true worship. He instructs them about keeping the key festivals that shape their identity as God's people. These include, in verse 18, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They are to remember their redemption from Egypt and they are, that they were redeemed um, from slavery and that they are to redeem their firstborn, just as God had told them earlier in the book of Exodus. In verse 21, we see that they're to keep the Sabbath as a gift to remind them of their rest from oppression. And then in verses 22 and 23 and verse 26, they are reminded of God's provision as they keep the festival of weeks. So each festival recalls God's salvation and reminds them of God's care for them. The laws in verses 25 and 26 also remind them about mixing with other nations. So the idea is God is saving them. He's restarted the covenant with them. He's restated the stipulations. He's called them to put away the idolatry, to resist idolatry, and to offer him true worship. Now, how does this apply to us? We don't keep a feast of unleavened bread and a festival of weeks, and all this can seem quite strange to us, but actually it's quite relevant. According to Colossians chapter 2, we no longer keep these festivals, but Jesus has given us new identity-forming acts similar to what he gave the people of Israel. He's given us gathered worship. He's given us baptism. He's given us the Lord's Supper. These are the new covenant identity practices. Baptism replaces circumcision as the identity marker for the people of God, and the Lord's Supper replaces the Passover. I don't have time to prove that in the New Testament, but I trust you know that already. But they, do, they all function in a similar way. They, they, they remind us of God's salvation and our identity in Him. The very thing these worship practices in the Old Testament were given to the Old Covenant people of God. They function the same way. They remind us of God's covenant commitment to us and our commitment to him. That's what baptism is. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's covenant. It's covenant. It's, it's relating to God on the basis of his promises. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are what distinguish us and mark us off as God's people, similar in the way to what Passover, circumcision, 
festival of weeks and those various Old Covenant ceremonies did for the Old Testament people of God. So some application questions for us to think about. In this season, no doubt, no doubt as we feel week after week after week the effects of COVID-19 and the ongoing limitations we have, sheltering in place, social distancing, all those things going on, surely in your soul you are feeling the, 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 the neglect, the absence of gathered worship. That how sad it is that we cannot be together. And you know what? God has put that in your soul. You're wired for that. You can't resist that long or go without that long without feeling like you're in a wilderness. And God felt that way about his people in the old covenant. He knew that as, as soon as he established this covenant with them, that he needed to inform them about worship and gathering in worship. And so do you lament the loss of gathered worship in this season? Or do you kind of hope, well, it'll keep it this way? Surely not. Surely you don't feel like couch worship is better than gathered worship. I hope none of us will feel like, man, I just wish we would go on-demand video worship all the time. No, this is, a, this is not a replacement for the gathered church, brothers and sisters. This is a supplement for the scattered church. That's all this is. We, and we feel and long for the return of the privilege of gathering together. And if you're turning from sin and you've trusted in Christ, have you followed him in the identity-marking act of baptism as God's people? Just as you couldn't imagine an uncircumcised Jewish person being a part of the covenant family of God, so, brothers and sisters, if if you're clinging to Christ, if you've been among us or have been with us for a long period of time, when, when we come back together, we hope you'll come talk to us as pastors about getting baptized. Because that is the marker of being a, that is identifying with the people of God. It's not just praying a prayer. It's actually coming out and saying, I belong to Jesus. And baptism is us giving you the Team Jesus jersey and you receiving that and wearing that as an identity that you are in fact a follower of Christ. Following Christ is very personal, but brothers and sisters, it's never private. We have to go public with him. And are you committed to the Lord's Supper? That's something we haven't been able to practice while we've been in quarantine here. But if the Lord's Supper has replaced Passover, and it has as the covenant meal of the people of God, then what does it say about our relationship with God if we don't want to do it? If we refuse to come, if we don't want to partake, God is wanting to renew his covenant with us every time we take the Lord's Supper. But are you interested in taking him up on that offer? And if so, what does that say about where you are in your relationship with him if you don't want to put the wedding ring back on and renew your vows and pledge yourself to Jesus again? Brothers and sisters, this is what God teaches us about being a God of second chances. He renews his covenant with his people, which is centered in worship and fleeing from idolatry. Is that not what the Lord's Supper is all about? Is that not what baptism is all about? That we are fleeing other gods and we're committing ourselves to worship the only true God. God has given us an identity marker on the front end, which called baptism, and he's given us an ongoing identity marker as part of the church called the, called the Lord's Supper, so that through that we would be continually reminded of who we are as God's people and that we would continually flee to him as our Savior and Redeemer. Number three, finally. We've seen that God is the God of second chances in the first nine verses by the revelation of his character. We've seen that God is a God of second chances in verses 10 through 28 
by the renewal of his covenant. And thirdly, we're going to see that God is a God of second chances by the reflection of God's countenance in Moses. Look at verses 29 through 35 again. I won't take time to reread them, but we saw there that Moses is on Mount Sinai with the two tablets. And as he comes down, the people are scared because his face is shining from being in the presence of God. And so what happens? Verse 35, when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he'd remove the veil until he came out. And then when he came out, he would put the veil over his face. Why? We're told in verse 35, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is the Apostle Paul explaining Exodus 34 for us as Christians today. Specifically, this part of Exodus, Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time and wrap up. Here's the good news, brothers and sisters. If we know Jesus and we're part of the new covenant people of God, you have witnessed more glory than Moses ever saw. Now, that may be hard for you to believe, especially in light of reading through. It's like, I've never been on the top of a mountain with God. I've never had my face literally glowing from being in the presence of God. But Paul says that New Covenant Christians got it better than that reality. You say, what in the world? How so? Because the covenant with Moses was good, and it came with glory, but it has been far outstripped by the glory of the coming of Christ and the new covenant. Paul argues that the glory of the gospel comes with more promise, more power, more permanence, and we are in a far more privileged position than Moses ever was. You say, what? How in the world can we be in a more privileged position than Moses was? I mean, he spoke with God face to face, and you get to too. You get to too. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll start reading at verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory. Now, just stop there. He's calling Exodus 34 in the Old Covenant a ministry of death. We'll see why in just a second because of its inability to be kept. Carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is back in Exodus 34 and the Old Covenant, the ministry of righteousness, which is the New Covenant, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now keep reading, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's it. What we have now is more permanent and precious than what Moses and the people of Israel enjoyed then. How can that be? The glory of the old covenant and its mediator Moses can't match the glory of the new covenant and its mediator Jesus. Jesus' transfigured glory will never fade. Moses faded. When he went into the tent, his face would glow, but slowly that glow would be worked out as he was further and further away from the presence of God. Not so with Christ. His glory, while he was on the earth, was veiled in flesh. But when we see him on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see what Jesus is really like. We see just a glimpse of what he was really like on earth. But Paul is showing that Jesus is our mediator. His glory is inherent. It's not derived from God. He doesn't doesn't get his glory from God. He is the glory of God. That's the difference. Christ is the glory of God. He doesn't just get his glory from God. His glory is inherent to who he is. It's not derived and therefore it's permanent and it doesn't fade away. That's the clear implication of what he says at the beginning of chapter 4. Let's keep reading in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul says, listen, I don't lose heart in preaching the gospel. Why? Because we got it so good. We've got an irresistible Christ to proclaim. Now what does he say? Look at verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, that is people don't receive it, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant reality that every one of us who is believing in Christ, this is what happened to us. We were born with a veil over our face. We, could not, we were blind to God's glory. We were indifferent to God's presence. We, we knew God by virtue of being created in his image, but we didn't want to know him. Or we at least treated as him, in, as, as him as indifferent. And yet, when the gospel was preached to us and the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts, he gave us eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shone in our hearts. And we were able to have the veil torn away. And we were able to see the glory of God face to face in Jesus Christ. Now, the people he's writing to never saw Jesus physically. Jesus is gone by this point. But yet he says that they were released from the bondage to the God of this world who is Satan. Their eyes were no longer blinded. And just as God spoke in creation, let there be light, that's what he did for all of us in Christ. That in order for any Christian to be made a Christian, any person to be made a Christian, an act of new creation has to take place. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, 
He's new creation. Because God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's an unbelievable reality. But brothers and sisters, we're not left there at just the point of conversion, but we are encouraged to press on. Because in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we are being transformed. We have been transformed, but we, we have a long way to go. And Paul says, God by his spirit is wanting to take us one degree at a time, one degree to another into the image of Christ. That's what our whole life is about. This pandemic, brothers and sisters, is about conforming you to the image of Christ. That is God's main objective in all of this for his people. That much we know. (laughs) He's doing 10 million things that we don't know about, but the one thing we do know is that God is using this time to make you seek him. Because it's by beholding him that you are being transformed into his image. Do you have more time to behold him now? We all do. Are you doing it? Are you seeking him? Seek my face, God says. My heart says, according to the psalmist, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Are you going to take him up on his offer? Are you going to seek his face in these days? Or are you just going to coast and wait till it gets back to normal? I hope not. Now, we all want it to return to normal. That's not a bad decision. But take this time to seek God. Paul says that we're being transformed and that we're transformed by beholding Jesus, by being with Jesus. If you want to shine like Moses did with even more glory, veil unlifted, it will not come apart from time with the Lord. It didn't come apart from time with the Lord with Moses. He had to go be with God to get glory from God. Brothers and sisters, it's not any different than us. We, when you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil is removed. You can see more than Moses saw and, the, and you shine more than Moses shone if you will but look and linger. Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Here's what I want to ask you. Can people tell where you've been? Do you show any signs of having been often in the presence of God? How many of us radiate something of having been with the Lord? Whatever you spend your time looking at, meditating on, thinking about, ruminating on, is what you will become. So what are you staring at? Who have you been with? Who or what has left its mark on you? What do you radiate when you walk into a room? Would anyone wonder whether you've frequently and habitually been with God? Those are convicting questions. Those are convicting questions for me to ask myself. But brothers and sisters, may it be said of us what it was said of the early apostles in Acts 4.13. These men have been with Jesus. We know it. People can tell where you've been. They always can. People can tell when people have been to a bar. They reek of alcohol and cigarette smoke. And people can tell when we've spent all of our time on HGTV and ESPN because that's what we're talking about. Not that those things are bad. People can tell when we've just been blinded by the iPhone. We need to be a people who are with God, brothers and sisters. You and I may know a lot of smart, impressive, gifted, 
and accomplished people, but how many God-stained people do we know? May God make us God-stained people. I want to be one of those. I want to be one of those. We become what we behold. So let's behold the Lord. I want to conclude with two quotes, and then we'll be finished. John Piper says, Long looking with admiration produces change. From your heroes, you pick up mannerisms and phrases and tones of voice and facial expressions and habits and demeanors and convictions and beliefs. The more admirable the hero is and the more intense your admiration, the more profound will be your transformation. It's not merely a brief glance now and then that is here implied, not the turning of the eye toward him for a few hurried moments in the early morning or in the late evening, but a constant loving and reverent beholding of him through days and years until his image burns itself upon the soul. If we thus train our heart's eyes to look at Christ, we'll be transformed into his image. And let me conclude with this quote from John Owen. It's by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we're spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It's by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which gives us rest and peace and satisfaction, we must seek them diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and to die. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires, and the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. We're transformed by knowing God and gazing on the glory of Christ. May the Lord help us to do that. Music team, come and lead us in worship, and I'll conclude us in a, in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving w wickedness and iniquity and sin and transgression. Lord, you, your character is such that we are eager to draw near to you. If you were a God who was harsh or if you were a God who was unloving or if you were a God who lacked mercy and grace and compassion, we might run from you, but you were a God who says, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to transform you. I want to make you like my son. Come be with me. Lord, may we take you up on your offer. You said, O oh Lord, seek my face. We say to you, one thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Make us such people who say, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.